This episode is sponsored by Lloyds Banking Group, serving Britain's communities and households for more than 250 years. Hello and welcome to Women with Balls, where I, Katie Balls, speak to today's trailblazers. My guest today was born in Melbourne, where as a student she joined the Labour Party aged 16. After graduating from Oxford, she moved to London and had a stint as a parliamentary researcher, but trained to be a teacher and became head of economics. The temptation to electoral politics eventually pulled her back. Having failed the first time, my guest became the MP for Redditch in 1997, labelled as one of Blair's babes. Within two years, she joined the government and under Gordon Brown, she became the first female Home Secretary, a post she later described as a poison chalice to her successor. She resigned over a dispute related to parliamentary expenses and since leaving politics has served as a chair on several public and private posts and she also now co-hosts a weekly LBC podcast as well as live shows of Ian Dale and chairs two NHS trusts. My guest today is Jackie Smith. Jackie, thank you for joining the podcast today. We always begin by asking the same question, which is, was yours a happy childhood? It was enormously Happy, Katie. Yeah. And in fact, I'm sitting here in Malvern now where I live, which is also, as you rightly say, where I where I grew up. Very stable family. Both of my parents were teachers, but also involved in local politics. So that's where I got a sort of love of politics from to begin with. Local comprehensive school, lots of drama that prepared me well for future life, sports and music. So very fortunate background, very fun opportunities. And um, I consider myself to be pretty blessed. And I mentioned in the introduction, you, I think, turned to Labour quite early on, but your parents were Labour supporters growing up. That's right. So was politics something where you're aware from quite an early age or political parties or was it different ways? No, I was completely aware from a very early age. You know, one of my early memories is going to number 10 Downing Street, which would have been in the late 60s, because my mum was the agent actually to Shirley Williams when Shirley was still in the Labour Party and uh, had to deliver something to number 10. And I got to go in and I was, you know, I was excited about it then in the same way as I was excited about it when I eventually got to go in again in, in the late 90s. And yeah, politics was something that we talked about around the dinner table. I used to, you know, enjoy an election day and cycling backwards and forwards to the polling station, picking up the numbers and delivering leaflets and all the things that have become, as I've got more involved in politics, a bit of a chore. But as a child, I just loved and I think was at the heart of the love that I still do have for politics. And your local MP, a Tory MP, did come and visit your school but didn't impress you enough. Is that right? <laughs> Michael Spicer. That is slightly, you can't believe everything you read on Wikipedia. So Michael oh, Spicer we, we, likes... We don't just use Wikipedia. <laughs> <laughs> Michael Spicer likes to say that he forced me into the Labour Party as a Conservative MP coming to talk at my school. He wasn't to blame. I was already well ensconced in Labour politics by by that point. Yeah, And you went to Oxford and you studied the degree that, of course, is seen as the degree for all wannabe politicians, PPE. <laughs> um, at the time, were you thinking, that's why I want to do it? Or how did you, I suppose did you come across that as the thing to apply for? 
I actually applied both for PPE and for English at um, at Hartford, and um, I think the English tutors were enormously helpful because they said to me, having listened to my interview, do you know what? I think you'd be better off focusing on PPE. And then you're right, that's what I studied. I did spend quite a lot of time involved with the Labour Club and student politics, which then continued after Oxford as well. And, you know, got a solid second class degree, as you say, in PPE, which some people I think, not wholly without reason, think is um, at the heart of uh, the problems with British politics, that there are so many Oxford PPEs in senior um, positions in government. I might take issue with them, but probably not that strongly. Yeah, and I suppose when you when you get there, did you feel as though I mean, were there any political contemporaries from your time at Oxford who listeners would know now? Um oh, yeah. Yeah. Um so the first time I went to the Labour Club, Maria and Angela Eagle were there, a couple of years older than me. John Grogan was the president of um the student union, then became a Labour MP with me. Boris Johnson was a few years behind me. Quite a few other people were sort of round and about at the same sort of time. So, uh, yeah. And, you know, whilst I arrived at Oxford feeling, as I think lots of people, and certainly those coming from the sort of state school that I came from, feel slightly nervous and a fish out of water, I found my place both at Hartford College and in student politics and a bit of rowing and some other things and just absolutely loved my time at Oxford and it does at least have the advantage of giving you I have to say a sense of confidence when you then venture into political life with people you know many of whom without much reason have an enormous amount of uh, confidence so I um I'm pleased both to have had the academic experience and the social and political experience and also, frankly, as I say, the confidence that I think that leaves you with. Um, Now, I mentioned the introduction, you had a brief stint as a parliamentary researcher, but then you became a teacher. Mm -hmm. So during that period, was there a sense that you were, I don't know, it wasn't that you were disillusioned with parliamentary research or did you want real life experience? What was going through your mind? Yeah, I mean, I'm always a bit dubious about this... um, charge that is made against people who who go into parliament from a political background you know it's hardly surprising if you are engaged in politics that you will want to work in politics and then you may well want to go into elected life so i think this idea that there is a real life and an unreal life is frankly a load of old nonsense but i did spend so, so, spent so do you think if someone goes from being i suppose oxbridge ppe spad and then mp that actually is fine. Look, I was at Oxford at the same time as David Miliband and, um, in fact, met him. And I don't have a problem with that. I I would have a problem if everybody in Parliament was like that. Yeah. But the idea that somebody who is both super clever and very interested in politics and has got experience of government as an advisor would not then make a good MP is nonsense. But for me... The process really was I worked actually for Terry Davis, who was the shadow chief secretary to the Treasury at the time, did a finance bill, worked with the young shadow city minister, one Tony Blair, did his photocopying. And um, 
enjoyed it, but sort of thought, well, I think there are other things I would like to do. So I went off and did my um, PGC and I taught economics for 11 years. And I have never regretted doing that. Personally, being out of London, doing that job has given me a perspective that I think has been useful when I then did come back into politics. I mean, I, I was elected in 97, but I had been a local councillor before that. I had the dubious pleasure of fighting the 1992 general election as well. So um, and what it would was be that? fair to say... I'd been completely non-political in that time. Yeah, and I suppose on 1992, obviously, to be honest, it's quite hard to move in Westminster these days, but is it 1992 or 1997 mm. when it comes yep. to the current state of the polls? So I think very much there's more in the 1997 camp right now. But <laughs> what was 92 like? I mean, you, you weren't successful in terms of getting your seat. Did you feel as though, you know... For many, it was a shock when the Tories somehow scraped it. Was there a point in the campaign when you start to think, actually, this just isn't going our way and I'm not sure about it? Well, I was quite young. I was only 30, um, less than 29, actually, when I fought that campaign. And I was in a pretty good position, actually, because I was in a seat that was very marginal, very much at the outside edge of what might be possible. But because it was considered like that, I got some good visits. I got, you know, a lot of support. Neil Kinnock came to visit Redditch and a great big crowd came and all of that. So I enjoyed the campaign. I'm not, you know, it's 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 hard in retrospect to remember quite what you felt like because in, in the middle ago. of the campaign, you're just so bloody knocking on doors and, you know, head down that it's hard to take to sort of reflect I know that I was pretty devastated. I can remember standing in the middle of my sitting room as the exit polls came before I went to the count and having a bit of a cry with my sister who'd been supporting me at the at the time. But um, it was still fun because it was my first opportunity and, um, uh, you know, devastating not to get a Labour government at that point, but in retrospect, obvious why we didn't. Um, why do you think that was? Because the public didn't trust us sufficiently with their money. And that is a lesson that has been learned, which is why I tend to agree with you, uh, Katie, that we are probably marginally more 97 now than 92, but with considerably less money, which is why um, I think Rachel Reeves is exactly right in the approach she's taking at the moment. So you, did you then think after, obviously, the disappointment, were you pretty certain you'd have another go at it? Do you know what yeah. I mean? Yeah. Yeah, look, and you asked me this earlier on about the sort of university experience as well. I always thought that I was covering it up quite well. But when I actually did get elected to to Parliament, I can remember some school friends interviewed in the local newspaper saying, oh, well, we always knew that's what she wanted to do. We were always clear she wanted to be the Prime Minister. So, um, yeah, I had always wanted to do it. Even whilst I was teaching, I was working, I I think, towards it. It was, you know, the first bit of me achieving the things that I'd wanted to do for about as long as I could remember, and that is to become a Member of Parliament. Now, you obviously win your seat in the 1997 election, and I mentioned earlier that you were um, referred to as a Blair's babe. How was that? Well, look, this I've got real sort of mixed feelings about it, because on the one hand, of course, what happened 
after we were elected in 1997, when for the first time there was a breakthrough in the number of women who were represented in Parliament was, quite rightly, on the steps of Church House, having had our first meeting of the Parliamentary Labour Party, we, all of us, the 101 Labour women MPs, posed for a photo with Tony Blair in the middle. And um, so it was really positive because lots of people said to me, wow, you know, seeing that number of women, we suddenly realised what a difference there was. There was a slightly handmaidenish vibe about it. And that's, I think, gave people the opening for, well, not people, a particular newspaper, an opening for the whole Blair's Babes thing, which just sort of, I suppose, taught me early on the way that women in politics were likely to be represented. But it came from something really positive, which was that absolute jump in the number of women that were there in Parliament. And I suppose you don't have anything to compare it to, right, entering in 1997. But did it feel as though I think there was like a real energy at that point, you know, lots of optimism, obviously a huge majority. Did it kind of almost feel that Labour was quite unstoppable? It did feel incredibly positive. You know, don't forget that we had in the... Sometimes, looking back now, people like to think that it was inevitable that we got a Labour government in 97. It didn't feel like that. I was a candidate for a, a long time between 92 and 97. And the campaigning was hard, enormously careful and disciplined, we had drummed into us that we couldn't take victory for granted, even when we were very well ahead in the polls. And so it felt absolutely on a sort of knife edge and we had to be super, super careful. So once we did actually get elected with a landslide, there was an element of relief about it. But of course, then very quickly, you get to realise that, as Tony has spoken of, you know, the size of your majority does not make government and the change that you want to happen happen more quickly. It makes expectations higher. And yes, there was a great sense of, you know, people really, really positive in the country, I think, at that point. And things did start to happen and to, and to change. But then you realise that government is actually quite tough and takes time and that people do begin to become disillusioned reasonably quickly about what you can and can't do. So then you have a sort of um, sniff of reality. And you held various different briefs, but obviously a limited time podcast. I mean, just touching on something you just said there about how the size of the majority, obviously it doesn't change factors in terms of how much you can achieve in things like the economic conditions and all and those. Mm. But also I think as the Tories have discovered, a large majority isn't always the easiest to corral. <laughs> I think some are saying um, that they actually thought the best size majority was maybe like a 40 person majority, mm. enough to keep disciplined. I mean, you were chief whip for a time. How did you find, I mean, that's 2005, so it's slightly different, but like, how would you say easy it was to bring all the MPs, I suppose, quite far into government your way? Well, I mean, that's right. And of course, before I became Chief Whip, I was in the Department of Health at the point at which we were doing health reform that people opposed, including some pretty senior ones within government as well. Tuition fees, some of the education reforms that I actually led in the 2006 Education Act. 
it was clear to me that, you know, there was the space within the Parliamentary Labour Party because of the numbers for people to be rebellious and difficult. And I suppose it's that experience that I took into being Chief Whip, as you say, in 2005, a job that I absolutely loved, by the way. I mean, it took me into the Cabinet. It took me back into Parliament and with a view across things that were happening in different government departments, having been, you know, departmental minister since 1999. And I always took the view that you had to work pretty hard, actually, with Labour MPs to keep them sufficiently involved and informed and part of the programme in order to be able to maintain your majority, not solely instrumentally like that, but because actually you have a whole bunch of serious committed politicians who not unreasonably expect to have a role in what you're trying to do as a as a government and that was one of the things i tried to do in my in my year as chief whip and something that i think sometimes whips don't do enough of yeah, you describe Nick Robinson at the time as being effective at making peace between the Blair and Brown factions. <laughs> what what were I wasn't your only... <laughs> Yeah, obviously you were doing lots of things, but what were your <laughs> top tips? You know, what were how do you think uh, you were good at that, just speaking to lots of people or <laughs> I did uh, yeah, I think it was keeping in touch with lots of people. I think it was trying sometimes to raise people's eyes from the personalities that were involved in that, you know, particular set of TBGB troubles, being a bit of an honest broker, I hope. Yeah, just that was my style, I suppose. You know, I mean, I think probably if you looked back on my time and asked people which camp I was more in than the other, people would probably have a view. But I hope, and presumably Gordon also believed that I wasn't only on one side otherwise you wouldn't have made me home secretary I don't think did you ever just like get them both in a room or their team and just be like fight it out enough of this even though I was chief whip I think it was above my pay grade to get those two in a room and bang heads together maybe their team (laughs) well parliamentary party members sometimes yeah um, now, you mentioned, you preempted my next question, which was obviously Tony Blair was replaced with Gordon Brown. And obviously you were promoted at the point. But I wondered as someone who, as you say, I think some would say close to Blair, but you served in Gordon Brown's government. What was it like just seeing, I, I think, a pair who clearly at one point had so much in common, do you know what I mean, on this great political project? And I suppose in your role as chief whip, you're starting to see the relation sour might be the wrong word but do you know what I mean like as in as things happen in politics you think about all the people who you know friendships that end at various points was it quite sad to watch the kind of the disintegration at times oh it was yeah no it was incredibly sad and incredibly frustrating it had as much to do with the people around both of them as it had to do with the individuals themselves but actually you know, it did become pretty brutal in that year when I was chief whip. I quite often like to say that I didn't lose a vote, but I did lose a prime minister because we had that period of time when, you know, plotting, frankly, was going on in order to make Tony Blair name the day when he was going to go and and Gordon could take over. That was poisonous of relationships beyond those who were already in in conflict around um, Tony and Gordon. So quite a bit of what I had to do, particularly in the second half of the year when I was chief whip, was to try to at least maintain 
within the parliamentary party those relationships as much as possible. Of course, now we look back on it, you know, having had Jeremy Corbyn as the leader of the Labour Party, brings into stark relief the fact that in any sort of ideological terms, Tony Blair and Gordon Brown were very, very close. You know, they had developed the winning new Labour team and programme together. And it's in that way sort of sad that they diverged. Once again, not really on the basis of ideology, but rather more on the basis of ambition, which is not a bad thing to have on the teams they had around them, on nuance much more than on fundamental areas of philosophy. Now, Gordon Brown becomes Prime Minister. You are appointed Home Secretary, the first woman in the role. At the time of your appointment, um, first of all, I mean, I presume you had no doubt about accepting it. Oh, no, I, I had no doubt about it. I mean, I was surprised. He had invited us all into his office in the run-up to him taking over and said, you know, what, what job would we like? And I told him what job I would like, and then he gave me a completely different one. But I have to say it was, um, no, what, I don't think... What job did you want? I, I said I would like to be education secretary because I had done two stints in the Department for Education by then. But no, I mean, you know, honestly, if you're sitting opposite the Prime Minister and he says... I'd like you to be Home Secretary. You're not going to go, oh, well, I'm not quite sure about that. No, I was pretty shocked. But actually, I had had seven years in government by then. I'd done jobs, you know, domestic policy jobs, a little bit of um, economic stuff in the Department of Trade and Industry. I knew how government worked. I knew what I thought about the Home Office. And I felt that I could do it. Tell us about your first day in the job. <laughs> well, my first day in the job, of course, well, my first 24 hours in the job were going off to the Home Office to start receiving the briefing, doing a little speech to Home Office staff, going home that night with my folder to think about, you know, to get fully up to speed and then to be woken up the next morning by my private secretary saying, there's been a failed terror attack in Haymarket in London. And then to go into the office and the diary sort of put aside. And that was the terror attack, which the next day involved the terrorists driving up to Scotland and driving the Jeep into the front of um, Glasgow Airport. So it was an immediate introduction to the challenge of counterterrorism, I think it would be fair to say. Cobra meetings, a statement outside number 10, then the weekend when the plot, if you like, was sort of unwinding with the, with the Scottish attack, the need to talk to the opposition and also internationally to people about the terror attack and to prepare for the statement in Parliament on the Monday. So... It was pretty much being thrown in at the deep end. And, you know, thank goodness, the only casualties in the end were the terrorists themselves. If you want a sort of way to learn quickly about the nature of counter-terror and the, those involved in it, it was a pretty good exercise in doing that. And during that time too, when you're Home Secretary, you are suddenly having, I'm correct to say, like, live in security or security around you at all times was was that quite a drastic change in a way I think it often seems to take people by surprise actually just what it means for your life yeah not live in but yeah 24-hour personal protection yeah 
So it does mean that you have, so outside my house in London, you know, police officers with guns. I refused it in Redditch because that's where my kids lived and they had a little flat that overlooked my house. You don't go out without um, telling your protection team, except on one occasion when I was feeling a bit stir crazy on a Sunday afternoon and I went out the back of my house in Redditch and had a walk through some woods that were out the back there and I'd been out about 15 minutes and the phone rang and the protection team said, um, just checking everything's okay, Home Secretary. I thought, this is your bloody way of telling me that you know that I've sneaked out the back. <laughs> you showed them. <laughs> but, you know, these are um, they're great people. My constituency party and the people of Redditch when I was doing my sort of constituency MP duties, which I did every weekend because I had a marginal seat, you know, loved the fact that the police would turn up first and sort of, check out where I was going and then would be there with me and were just brilliant at making people around them feel at home. And um, and then, you know, when I went on holiday and they came with me to my caravan in North Wales, although as um, Mike Foster, one of my good friends, the MP for Worcester at the time, said, um, he said, I, was, um, I went on holiday with Jackie. I was in a tent, she was in the caravan and the protection team were in the hotel down the road. But they were also on the beach playing cricket with my kids. So, uh, you know, there were good things about protection as well. And then lots of obviously policy achievements and things during that period. I wonder if there was any you're particularly proud of. Obviously, national identity cards did not happen. But, you know, well, it did, up- but then it got scrapped. But yeah, yeah. well, it yeah, happened very briefly. <laughs> Yeah. Um, but, you know, toughening up prostitution laws, terrorist suspects for up to 42 days without charge. Is there anything looking back on that period where you think, like, that is my legacy as Home Secretary? The most important thing I think I did was the development of neighbourhood policing. So we did, that was the point at which there was neighbourhood policing teams everywhere across the country. And it became a model of policing that really gained legitimacy and what you saw was people's confidence in policing improving, people being more willing to come forward and report crime and to act as witnesses. And the dismantling of that is something that I am most disappointed about. And we had actually a pretty successful period of time in terms of counter-terror. We published the first public contest strategy, counter-terror strategy, and I was pleased you know clearly there are elements of it that are not not public but i was pleased that we began to develop an understanding amongst people about what the strategy was and what the elements of it were so i feel proud of what i achieved yeah and of course unlike many of my predecessors you know didn't step down because of a policy problem step down because of a personal problem. Clearly my, my timeline of questions is very obvious because you're getting to my next question, which was um, you, you resigned obviously over the expenses scandal. I suppose, I mean, listeners will know the broad, you know, sense of what happened in that. But I wondered at what point, you know, when there's all this pressure, the story's growing in the media, did you realise quite early on you were probably going to have to go over it? or do you, and, and with retrospect, do you think you could have potentially held on or do you have regrets about it? Um... Well, I have regrets. I have regrets that, you know, I didn't, I have regrets that I didn't check my returns properly and ended up, you know, with a receipt that um, included pornographic film on the broadband connection bill. You know, that's an obvious regret. I 
probably was done for from that point onwards. But actually, Gordon wanted me to stay a bit longer and not go at the point at which I thought I should go. And I thought I owed it to him. So I did stay for a bit longer. In the end, the reason I had to go was less because, you know, I took a big hit personally and politically for something a lot less significant than lots of other people were uh, responsible for. But my family took an even bigger hit and I couldn't have had the career that I had without the support of my then husband and the happiness of my kids was also really important and he he cared for them as well as working with me and he was massively affected by it and frankly I couldn't continue to do the job without his support and I felt he needed my help as well as did my kids and that was essentially the reason why I stepped down at the point at which I did what I regret funnily enough is that I fought my parliamentary seat I sort of thought I owed it to Redditch to try to defend the seat I would have been better off personally and probably for Redditch although in the end the swing wasn't particularly different to the overall swing that defeated us in 2010 but personally I would have been better not going through that experience. You wrote open letter to Theresa May um, suggesting the post is a poison chalice Do do you still think the post is a poison chalice? I mean obviously we've had much higher turnover in recent years but that isn't all, um, I think, probably the fault of the role. <laughs> it's a really difficult... Look, look, Home Secretary is a difficult role. Essentially, it's about stopping bad things from happening. And every time bad things happen, the Home Secretary gets the blame for it. I had a lot of time for Theresa May. I had a lot of time for Amber Rudd. I had marginally less time for Pretty Patel and I had no time whatsoever for Suella Braverman. And I had a reasonable amount of time for Sajid Javid. But, Do you, and have I you got have... much time for James Cleverly so far? Um, so far, so good, I would say, <laughs> actually. <laughs> and I have, despite the media stuff that I do, up until Suella, I had largely taken the approach that I know how hard it is. I know what is happening behind the scenes and I wasn't going to sort of add to that by having a go. So that was my approach. The, the thing that I disliked about Suella is... You know, people have got the right to take a different political view, a different set of priorities. But being Home Secretary is a serious job. And if you're not willing to actually do the graft to make the change, as opposed to seek the headline, well, I don't think you're likely to win the respect of people that have done the job before you. If Labour takes power and the current shadow cabinet is just... Say let's work on the premise they all stay in their current briefs. Yvette Cooper would become Home Secretary. Have you given her much advice in terms of, I suppose, just what it's like to, you know, be in the brief when you are in power and things like that? I mean, I have spoken to Yvette about it, yes. Yvette has the big advantage, of course, that she has been in the Cabinet previously. Yeah. And she has been the Home Affairs Select Committee Chair. So she completely gets the policy area and she understands what it's like to be a cabinet minister. I'm not sure anybody can prepare you for what it's like to step through the doors of 
Marsham Street and be the Home Secretary. But, you know, I, I think she will do a great job and I think she's as well prepared as anybody could be to come into government and to be the Home Secretary. And when we go to uh, your career now, you're one of the first former politicians to really, you know, go into commentating broadcasting and so forth in a way that you know well now we can't move for Tory MPs presenting TV shows Um, (laughs) but you've also spent your time on NHS hospital trusts what are you most proud of what brings you the most kind of joy is it fun dipping in basically to be a commentator but you wouldn't really want to go back properly I love the fact that I now have a combination of things that I consider to be serious where I get to make an actual impact on NHS trusts work with staff and patients, have a view on policy, get the chance to impact on that as well, alongside the opportunity to do the commentary, the fun things that I do in terms of media, strictly, for goodness sake. You know, I mean, it was, I consider that to be a really nice combination of of things to do. I would never stand for election again. But I think, and if you listen to the podcast, you'll know that Ian constantly mocks me about the fact that, you know, were Labour to get into government and Keir Starmer needed uh, members of the House of Lords to help to deliver the programme for a Labour government, I would certainly not say no to that opportunity. And with that, the final question is one we ask everyone again, which is, uh, what is the worst advice you've ever been given? And of course, you you may have taken it and regretted it, or you may have just ignored it from the off-go. I think the worst advice and the most waste of time advice I've ever been given is why aren't you more careful and more slow to speak up and come to and and be noisy about the things that you um, believe in? You'd probably get further if you were quieter. Well, I've never been quiet and I continue to sometimes get myself into trouble by being willing to argue with almost anybody. And that's one of the advantages of having had the career that I've had and being in the position that I'm in, that I'm in now, that I don't really have to answer to anybody. Thank you, Jackie, for joining today. Pleasure. Pleasure. 